0: Good day to you. Uh, Hello from Austin, Texas. My name is Ryan Slaybaugh. I'm the host of Tractor Time, a new weekly podcast from Acres USA. Uh, And today is a special day for a few reasons. Not only is it Earth Day, uh, it's the first day that we'll be podcasting out of our office. Uh, We are more than 45 years old and credit our founder, Charles Walters, with spearheading this eco-agriculture movement. He started a magazine published and wrote books, created an annual conference, and rest in peace is still part of our daily conversation. Uh, for a long time, we've been calling ourselves the voice of eco-agriculture, so now we finally can live up to those words with a podcast and truly have a voice. Uh, again, my name is Ryan Slavoff. I'll be your host for these podcasts, and every week we'll interview a character who we think is relevant to the eco-agriculture movement, and then follow it up with a monologue about eco-farming that had been presented by an expert at a past uh, Acres USA conference. We want these to be entertaining and educational, of course, and always we want you to be comfortable sharing your ideas with us and our feedback. Uh, You can email me at podcast at acresusa.com. Let me have it. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. I'd appreciate all that. Uh, our first guest today is Abby Smith. Uh, you're going to listen to a phone conversation we had earlier in the week. Uh, it's unedited. I, uh, uh, it's, we ran it as is. about 45 minutes, and it's a great conversation. Uh, she and I have been working together for more than a decade, and uh, she's now working with the Savory Institute. She's writing a series for our magazine. She's a rancher and protect, practitioner of sustainable grazing methods. She's traveled around the world. Uh, she's got beautiful kids, uh, and if we're lucky... Uh, uh, we are lucky because she's going to share those stories today with us. Uh, then we'll introduce Charles Walters and go back in time a bit and, and talk about a presentation he gave early on in the history of Acres USA. Uh, we really hope you enjoy this. Uh, there will be more in weeks to come. Uh, and thank you so much for listening.
1: Abby, are you on?
2: I am here. Hi, Ryan.
1: Okay. Um, We're going to get started. Uh, Abby and her husband, Spencer Smith, own and operate the Jefferson Center for Holistic Management, a Savory Global Network hub serving Northern California, Nevada. Uh, Spencer works with land managers, ranchers, and farmers, and Abby uh, serves as the Savory Global Network Coordinator for the Savory Institute. They live in Fort Bidwell, California, and the Springs Ranch, the demonstration site for the Jefferson Center is holistically managed by three generations of Smiths, Steve and Patty Smith, Abby and Spencer Smith, and the main boss of the whole operation, Mazzy Smith. To learn more, uh, you can visit at jeffersonhub.com and savoryglobal Uh We'll go through that again. I'll have Abby tease it as well through the podcast. But uh, Abby, thank you for joining us today.
2: Oh, Ryan, thank you so much for letting me be here. It's an honor.
1: Uh for those who don't know, um Alan Savory and the Savory Institute have a have a mission very aligned with, with EcoFarmers and, and Acres USA, uh which again means we're very happy to have Abby on today to help us kick off the podcast. Um Abby, could you start by just telling a little more about the mission of the Savory Institute and kind of what you guys do every day?
2: Yeah, Ryan, I just wanted to confirm you can hear me all right and the sounds coming through all right?
1: Yes, you're hearing you loud and clear.
2: okay, perfect. Before I launch into that. Right, so so my husband and I joined the Savory Global Network because we really believe in the mission of the Savory Institute. And we wanted to be part of something that was bigger than ourselves and part of a movement. And what, um, what struck us about their, not just their mission, but their approach is that they were trying to, they are working, we are working, I should say, to create this movement. And the mission is to restore the world's grasslands through holistic management. And we specifically want to, to restore what, what equates to about 5% of the world's grasslands. And that's, um, a billion hectares by the year 2025. So it's a big, hairy, audacious goal, as we call that in the, with the Savory Institute team, but it's certainly inspiring. And it would take, to, if you think to, to reach that magnitude of a billion hectares of restored grassland, it will take a true movement to make that happen. That's not going to be individuals working by themselves or, you know, a small group of people in one country. It's literally a global movement that we're part of wow. and that the Savory Institute is facilitating.
1: So explain a billion hectares to me. How big is that in comparison with something else? Oh,
2: it's heaven. <laughs> I didn't know you that. That's such a great question. Um, there's, a, there's a fun map that, that Alan Savory uses a lot in his um in his presentations, and it has like huge swaths of most continents, a circle, the inhabitable continents. And that would be, so imagine like taking a red pen on a map and just drawing big circles over most of the, um, most of the inhabitable land. And that's, um, those are the, the what we call in holistic management, more of the brittle tending um, areas where they mean they're more arid, um, less consistent rainfall, and they, they tend to really respond well and really need animal impact and proper grazing in order to help it to function and cycle properly. So that's where we feel like we can make the biggest impact. Where I, what I find though is that uh, people ask, well, what about the other places? What about the places that are non-brittle that are more like jungles and, and they can, without animal impact, they can re- regenerate and restore and grow. Um, do, do they need holistic management? And what about the oceans? And the answer would be yes. It's, it, absolutely, it can be applied and it can, it can improve the function of any environment because, um, the ecosystem really functions the same way wherever you are. But we just needed to focus, right? We couldn't say, well, we want to save the world, which is really what we in, in essence want to do, but you need to have focus and start. And so we, we focus on the grasslands because we think that's where we can have the biggest impact.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, that's, that's kind of an amazing goal. Uh, so I'm sure that makes some fun conversations in your offices uh, and as you're out there. Um, what uh, You mentioned the you know, world, and, and the world is a hard place to start with when, you, when you're when um, uh, you looking at agriculture. Um, you traveled a lot um, as part of this role. Um, are there, can you tell us or share with us something you've learned from your travels uh, that our, our audience would find interesting or something that surprised you about the world of agriculture out there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Africa. I feel like I, I went there right after college. I, I went to a very traditional agriculture school, um, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. I had a degree in animal science, so very, very much focused on, um, I would say, conventional agriculture in our training. Um, and then I was so drawn to holistic management, went to Africa after that, and I've been back to Africa twice now, all through holistic management. I also work with. Um, we've also been to Europe and, and other places as well. But I work with a lot of people about, from around the world. So I sit in my little office in Fort Bidwell, which is a tiny town. We don't have a gas station, a stoplight, a store. We do have a restaurant. So I have this very rural area. And then I'm talking to people from Australia, and New Zealand, and Mexico, and uh, Russia, and all these different places. And so I, I get to. Um, I get to know those places through the people mainly so I haven't been to all these you know many 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 countries but I do know the people intimately through my work and I think the interesting thing that I've noticed about our global situation or these common denominators amongst all of us is that there um, there isn't I don't want to be depressing because I'm usually a really optimistic person but there, there isn't Really, a place in this world that hasn't been impacted by humans, and mm-hmm. so I think that we have this fantasy when we're when we're in our own space that like there's something out right? the grass is greener on the other side, or there's just some place that's just magical and untouched, and it's it's going to it's like the answer, it's the place. And what I've learned is that in whether it be the United States or Sweden or the UK or Zimbabwe or Australia when people the people that I'm working with the story the narrative is so similar I mean you could just you could take um what I want to do or what Spencer and I want to do with our hub here and the change that we want to see and if you strip out the particulars that story is the same that my sister has in Sweden is telling and the same in Zimbabwe and all these other places and it's that um land has been degraded through human actions and human management, and and uh, it's just the nature of how we know how to do agriculture is it, it just naturally degrades land, and that's that's something that uh, Will Harris from White Oak Pastures, who is another hub in the Savory Network, he just says so bluntly, and it's it's hard for me to say, but it really is true when you look at the world, um, and there's there's people who um, that accepts that as just the way things have to be and then there's people who deeply believe that there's another way and that we can do better and we have to do better for future generations of all species including our own and those people right. who believe that we have to do better it's just absolutely essential those are the people who tend to be part of our, our network and because we have this common vision but it's not even like we bought into the vision it's like we had it ourselves and then we found each other and it's like oh my gosh you want to make this better too and so there's this sense of deeper connection beyond like a professional network that you might have or where you just want to exchange services or goods but i mean these the people that i meet because we have this similar narrative and we we've, we've come to similar conclusions about our future we're really um it's almost like a family level, but, but I, I, it's not even like that. It's just like finding a really good friend and a, a comrade and a, an ally after when feeling like you might be alone in all of this, but then you finally connect with this whole group of people who want to make it this way as well and do, do it, it better. And, um, so that's, it's just really invigorating and inspiring. So I think too, I'm in a roundabout way answering your question, but I think that the – what I see is that one, land has been degraded, and people are – it's causing all sorts of um, different types of problems from social, um, Mm -hmm. families not able to stay on the land, Um, in more dire situations like in Africa. uh, we're I'm working with people in Nigeria now where there's lots of conflict over grazing lands. That's brought on by uh, not enough grass to, or water to feed and water the animals. And um, so those cause, you know, social problems. And then those escalate into economic problems when we have war, when we can't produce products. And so it's very – it's not a hard step to take to see how the problems of land degradation affect literally all of us. And um and so yeah, I think that's and then there's these pockets of places where they're they're doing things in a way that actually regenerating the land through the management decisions and looking at it in a holistic view and, and able to bring some of that back into alignment. So that
1: makes that makes sense. That was kinda of leads into my next question, which was uh you know, is it as you traveled, and, and and just to echo your point, I think you're exactly right that um, one of the things I was reading the other day was about the, you know, the country of Tunisia and how that used to be a, a very forested, uh, luscious land before it was clear cut, um, you know, through um, uh, foreign invasion and clear cut for the natural resources. And now they're a desert country trying to get back into agriculture just for pure survival at this point. Right. So those. Those uh, stripping of resources that we feel like are are right do have long term consequences, and I think we're we're finally getting to the point where we're being able to measure those consequences and uh, do something about it. um, Ultimately,
3: absolutely.
1: Um, But anyway, to get my question: Is is there a you you mentioned that there are some pockets that you feel like are really doing it correctly or uh, doing it in a holistic way? Um, Can you go into one of those areas or talk about one of those areas and what makes them what makes you feel like they are doing it right?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I my exposure obviously has been through the Savory Network. So so maybe that's my bias, but I feel like um the 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 hubs that I've seen and I've worked with throughout the world and the people who are interested in being hubs, they they too have a similar narrative and I and it's that um usually things have gone really bad to the point where they've they're backed against the wall and they have to make a change and so they they Like just take this big leap and they start thinking totally differently. They start operating differently. And the difference is between like linear and mechanical type thinking to more of a holistic view and looking at everything interconnected and seeing how you can manage those systems instead of – and work with them instead of try and dominate and pound them down. And so where I see these pockets of life springing up is is through our network. And it could be – um, and I believe it's through what they're doing, but it's also because that's who I work with. Um, I'm also part of a group um, called Regeneration International, and it's more of a uh, a group of of well, it's a a, a network uh, that's facilitated by Regeneration International. People who are working and doing projects that regenerate the land and regenerate soil. So instead of depleting and mining it, they're they're um, Growing it and building it back up. So you have this strong foundation now to grow all these, to grow what you need to grow. And, uh, so I think between the Savory Network and the Regeneration International, I'm seeing this movement start of people that are connecting with each other, that are, um, that are learning from each other and, and really making changes on the ground. So an example of that, I think, is really the, the original hub, which is the Africa Center in Zimbabwe. So this is a really special place to me. It's where my husband and I went, and to do our training in holistic management. It's where uh, Alan lives. Alan and his wife Jody live for half the year, and it's just uh, they, there's been holistic management practice on that place for a long time. So there's really great evidence of what it, what is possible, and so there's you know the bare land before pictures and the the vibrant you know, grasslands in the after pictures. And when you go there, um, so you're in Zimbabwe, right? So this Mm -hmm. is a country that has gone through absolute economic collapse. They have, their currency has no value. And the unemployment rate is something, gosh, I wanna say like 90%. I mean, it's just exorbitantly high number. So, um, and when, when we were there, I was there last June, and uh the banks just stopped lending money. Like they just had stopped um and there were like these funds on the bank and those type of that level of economic dysfunction is happening in that country. And yet you come to the Africa Center and you would never know that. It's this little it's this to me it's like this oasis within um this desert, both I mean socially, economically and ecologically. And it um and people are happy, they're smiling uh there's communities that are working together they they have their grazing plan they're herding their animals together uh, there's so much grass they can't produce enough animals to keep up with the with the production of the land um it it's peaceful it's it's happy i it's just a um this amazing little little place within um a very 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 challenging situation
1: sure that uh, uh yeah that it it makes me wonder and i guess the question i not not meaning to be too uh, bleak on this subject, but is it harder mm. to initiate change in a country like the United States then which uh in mm. some areas certainly have have a have a, a wealth of food options and uh, um aren't pressed against the wall like a country like Zimbabwe <laughs>
2: You know, I think I think you're right, Ryan. I, I do think that's a huge challenge. I think what actually is happening though is that our that our dire situation is masked. I don't think it's really that different, but we have a lot of um, things that can distract us and uh, I hate to be use these words, but the word comes to mind is sedate, because I remember mm-hmm. coming back from Africa the first time and you know, being there with all the, the wildlife, and um, I was working outside every day. And, I mean, the, it, there's just a feeling there. And I came back, and I felt like culturally and from a society level, in the United States, people are just too comfortable, and they're kind of sleepy. Like you go through life not really yeah. having to be fully awake. And um, I think that leads to all sorts of, of problems that we're not even aware of. Um so i what Spencer and I find in our work with with people in the United States is that um we there is a sense that well, things are okay like that you know there's there's enough food mm-hmm. there there i mean we even have food waste problems um there's there's a level of comfort and and wealth that uh, that just prevents us from having to think about things on a on a level that other people are forced to think about. But um, it's not to say that we don't have our own extremely complex problems that need to be addressed in the same dire fashion that that people are addressing in um, in Africa and other countries. I think one is our on the social level is our just our level of isolation as a culture. There, what I noticed in a- Africa and other communal places is that there the sense of belonging and, and comfort that comes from that uh, type of living I just have never experienced here and we're becoming so isolated and I think that's really affecting a lot of people in their own happiness and fulfillment. Um, I think that we're we have a food system that is is becoming more and more devoid of nutrients and that Mm -hmm. is translating into a whole host of chronic disease um, situations that we're just because they're happening slowly and that's the nature of chronic disease and is that we're just accepting them as reality. It's like, well, you know, of course it's always been the way that, you know, people get diabetes and they die of heart disease and all of these things that kids are obese and that mm-hmm. we're slowly accepting that as our reality and, and, and just a given when it, when it isn't and there's some really fundamental things that we need to address with our food system. And our land um, to correct them, and there's people that are speaking out about it. There's movements that that are going, but I think it's still fringe. Um, And and so we might have abundant food, but it's really it's really we have abundant calories, but we're we are still really devoid of nutrients, and that is not it's sustainable either.
1: Right, right. When you look at the overall, uh, you know, pesticide-free agriculture, there's still less than one percent of the total um agriculture market so there's there's uh it's it's growing quickly but it's uh growing against a huge uh uh, uh challenge you know to 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 get that from one percent to five percent would make a, a fundamental change in our food uh supply and and how we live um but that's daunting you know just to get it to five percent um, uh, um just for our listeners uh you're listening to tractor time a podcast by Acres USA. Today's guest is Abby Smith, a rancher in California and a global network coordinator for the Savory Institute. Uh, we're going to get back into the questions here. I'm going to get technical for a minute um, while we're kind of on the subject. Uh, and you've written about this in the past. Um, uh, you, could you explain the difference between, say, t- tactics in your world of, of rotational grazing and, say, a, a term that you use called planned holistic grazing? As well, uh, sometimes those get confused, and sometimes those get those. Are, there, there's some overlap there too. But could you explain to listeners, you know, how do you see the differences between those?
2: Sure. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting concept, and I think um, rotational grazing becomes this umbrella term that's used really broadly for anyone who doesn't just open the gate and turn the cows out, and then in mm-hmm. six months come and and uh, take them out of that that you know grazing cell or that pasture. So I think anyone who's who is trying to um move the cattle or livestock across the land in a way that is beneficial to both the cattle and the livestock, they they um they say I'm well I'm rotationally grazing because I'm moving it. Um and that that it may be true and so it I think then it loses its meaning because it's applied in so many different places. And I think that um It is so we what we call the just the turnout method that's typically referred to as set stock grazing. So it's just Mm -hmm. that they're not you know they're just they're just there. But um, what holistic planned grazing does is it it is a whole planning technique and method that plans for the recovery of the plant. So the whole shift goes to the plant and what what's happening with the growth and the cycle and the stages of development of that plant. And that, if that isn't taken to an, into account, there will be degradation in the, in the pasture because the plants will be, uh, overgrazed, which means that they don't have time to grow their leaves back enough and, and then develop more roots. So what, what, so there's a whole explanation that we go into, but just the simple version is that in essence, what happens is the roots start to die back. So you have mm-hmm. not very roots in the ground, and that leads to a whole host of, of, um, like a downward spiral. So, of problems like, um, you, you lose soil because there's nothing, that, there's not a lot of root mass there to hold it in place. You lose biodiversity underground because there isn't, there isn't a lot of roots pumping sugar into the ground, which feeds the, the biology and the, the, microbes in the in the soil and the small life in the soil which then creates more nutrients with the plant uses so there's a whole life cycle there that's going on at the root the root um, system and if the plant isn't grazed properly above ground so that it stays in a photosynthetic state longer throughout the growing season then mm-hmm. it the whole system starts to unravel a bit so um I think that in what we call non braille environments, those environments that tend to that are able to cycle without animal impact, so if you think of a jungle or a rainforest, like a tree falls down and it's immediately absorbed back into into the land but in a in a brittle environment that's more arid, think of the the West out here in Nevada or Arizona. If a tree falls down, it could be fifty years before it even starts to maybe decompose. It's very slow. So that, that environment needs the, um, the rumen of the grazing animal to provide that humid environment to break materials down and start to cycle them through the land again and, and feed the biology in the soil. So, um, in brittle environments, I think that people can move animals, you know, in a way that they don't have to really account as much for the timing of the of the plant because there's so much regrowth. But in, in the, in the arid west, it's very important to, to not overgraze because we have such longer recovery time. You know, you're Mm -hmm. dealing with, you know, you don't have that rapid cycle. So, uh, I just, I, I just, uh, we try to not use the term rotational grazing because we want to be more specific. I think it's just too broad and it's too much of a catch-all phrase. And I want to know exactly really what does that mean you're actually doing on the land. And that um that's what's really going to matter, is it's it's really in the details. And um I think that that was one of Alan's key insights is that um when when he was studying um grazing patterns and, and the work of Boisson, that that was one piece is that the timing is really, really critical. It um it matters so much. It, timing when you're when you're exposing that animal to the plant so that it can um, bite it at the right time and then allow that plant to regrow enough and then come back again at the right time so that you're you are feeding the soil and feeding the system and growing it instead of um, taking it in the wrong direction i hope that's enough of a high level we could we could talk about this all day
1: you there are books written about this yeah i yes, no exactly no i- that's a great summary, and i think that that's it's key to um you know and it kind of goes to my next question, which is you know you, and you've you've written about this and we've written about this this is why we exist is that managing these ecosystems is is not easy and it's uh, challenging and it's a long term approach uh to to get it right um and that's really what drives a lot of the large agriculture Providers and, and producers approach to using pesticides and herbicides is, is it's kind of that, well, it's the only way to figure it out and the only way to truly manage it. And, and certainly we combat that with, uh, information that we try to get out there about the fallacy of that belief, but in a society that rewards shortcuts sometimes and, uh, and a lot of times, uh, both from the economic perspective and from just the personal time perspective, it's a hard sell sometimes to convince a farmer or a rancher that that the long way and the slow way is the best way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. Is there, a, you know, as you talk to ranchers and and, and farmers out there, is there? Uh, I guess, what's your tactic to k- kind of combat that mentality and that thinking? Uh, um,
2: you know, it's really the, our approach is that it's definitely a, a pull versus a push. Like we we um, mm-hmm. we can really engage with people around the, the idea and the practice of holistic management when. When they've formed the question in their mind of like, how, how can I do this? What I'm, I'm curious. I want to know more. But to try and talk to someone who isn't open yet, it doesn't, it actually can have like a reverse effect. It just re, mm. it makes them cling more to their practices and, and resist more to new ideas. So it really has to be driven by the farmer or rancher to seek out uh, something different or new or a pair, a deep paradigm shift like that from going from looking at, at nature as something to control and manage and dominate to which is very linear to something that's holistic and in, um, in your viewpoint in seeing how the interconnectedness of things and how to work with that to to make um to make a system really produce the um for us and coming from commercial farming backgrounds and ranching backgrounds ourselves we you know I I understand what it's like to make a living off the land only, and i, I think it's easy for people who don't make a living to really criticize uh, all types of farmers and ranchers because it's um being working trying to work with nature when you have floods and you have droughts and you have all sorts of things that you can't control it's just plus you're dealing with in many cases a commodity market it's a really hard business to be in, so we okay. um we don't we Coming from that background, having gone through a transition ourselves, you know we have our own story of why we came to this, and we have some really good reasons for for it um We don't want to villainize any farmer or rancher because um but I do believe I strongly believe that the system that they're in is not good, and I think that mm-hmm. no matter where you are you are in the system, it is making people suffer unnecessarily, and I think that um, the consumers suffer because they don't have adequate nutrients in their food. I think the farmers suffer because they're leveraged to the gills and trying to make a business work in an in economic model that is not sustainable. I think that families suffer because of the, the degradation that happens to the land and then the economic model. Um, I've seen way too many ranching families not make it and unnecessarily so. Because of the, the system that we're all part of that, that's producing and driving, um, these, uh, practices. So what, um, what I, I know, okay, so that's like the big, that's my big <laughs> philosophical point sure. of the day. But I think, um, that farmers in general and ranchers, they, they care about yield. I, I was at a mm-hmm. no-till on the plains conference in, in Salina, Kansas earlier this year. And I, I haven't been, I, I'm from a ranching culture, but, but a real farming culture is, is different. And I just, I loved it. It was so fun to be around um, a, whole, a whole, you know, convention hall of, of people who are, you know, not, not just like conventional farmers either, but they were the no-till. They had they so much knowledge about cover crops and all sorts of amazing practices. Um, but yield, everything was about yield, right? So it's so it's like, can can you right. produce the same yield if you're using this other method versus this method? And the thing, the thing that just makes me just giddy is that mm. when you manage holistically, your your production goes through the roof. It just mm. it's, it's it's just incredible, and it takes less effort because working with nature is so much easier than fighting it. I just don't know if you'll ever win when you're trying to control nature, but working with it um, and having your you know your systems and your production in line with that makes it just it just raises everything up it um, you just produce weight so much more and you do it with less input so there's less expense and more profit. so it um, the yields there the profits there there this also makes economic sense. It's the hard part. Is one acknowledging the shortcomings of the current system because I think people and farmers and ranchers literally have bought in. I mean, bought in with everything to this current system. They've, they're, they have loans. They have, um, they've invested their time, sometimes their whole Mm -hmm. lives in, into a certain method. And I think that's why it takes some people getting completely backed against the wall before they'll make a change and let go of their belief and their commitment to a system that is that is harming them and in some right. cases killing them. And I think right. um so that's that's why the the paradigm shift is the biggest change. And then um and then it's a matter of of untangling ourselves from the system and starting something new. And it it can't it a lot of times it cannot be done overnight and that's okay. Um we I've heard a lot of analogies to addictive, addictive nature and um, mm-hmm. drug use and things like that. And that, not to say that, that um, I don't know, I just hate to use such harsh terms, but it really is, if you think of it, um, a lot of the subsidy programs are very addictive. We get addicted mm-hmm. to high, high inputs of um, pesticides, fertilizers, whatever it may be, and then suddenly you're stuck. And you're in the system and you can't get out and so then people are they they don't want to deal with that and so you start defending the current system instead of right. trying to get into one. and i right. think that yeah. um right so you see really good people um with really good intentions stuck in a really bad system and uh, i i think that's our uh, biggest challenge as a culture and then Definitely
1: the people working in holistic management. Right. I agree. And and sometimes it gets dismissed as an old fashioned approach and, and we, we really uh try to flip that on its head. We talk about this this is, you know, the most modern way to do it, is that holistic way. And that we have the science and we have the, the technology and, and certainly it was being practiced for for millennia before we um Really understood uh, how to create pesticides and herbicides and things like that on a massive scale and apply them on a massive scale. But really, you know, the you know since the early 1970s, there's been a small group and a growing group of people who have really been uh, working on these methods and techniques and refining them and, and writing about them. And, and they're not proprietary; they're trying to tell everybody about them. And it's uh, um, it, it's you know, it's what started Acres. Uh, your, your comment reminded me of something Charles Walters, who who founded Acres, uh one of his sayings is, you know, nature always gets the last word. And I think it's uh you know, we, we can talk about conquering nature and doing all this, but it's always gonna have the last word uh and mm-hmm. speak finally uh, after we're long gone. So it uh so probably paying attention to it and listening to it uh will serve us all um yeah. very well. And, and and just to reiterate your point too about uh um we don't want to shame anybody and it's not about uh, uh us against them uh, mentality, but it is it is really a you know, how can we work together? Um you know, to still we're not trying to rob people of the retirement funds and their and their 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 savings accounts, but there is a way to do this to your point that actually will generate higher yields and lower costs and and save the land for the next generation coming up. So it uh um, and, and on that note, I wanted to kind of round out the conversation with you today uh, to talk about your ranch in California and kind of what you and your family do on that ranch. Uh, so could you uh tell us a little bit about the ranch and, and how you guys manage it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'd be, I'd be glad to. Um, so we live in the far most northeastern corner of California. So it's a little tiny town like I was saying called Fort Bidwell. Mm-hmm. It was an army um, post back in the 1800s. and um, We live right next to a Paiute Indian Reservation, which is the Fort Goodwill community. And then um, we are at the base of the Warner Mountains. So they look somewhat like the Sierras, but they're smaller, a much shorter um, mountain range. And so we have that to the west of us, and the ranch actually goes up onto the Warner. So they have, there's, you know, pine trees and evergreens, and there's also aspens and that kind of alpine look as well. Then, um, to the east of us is Nevada, so we're about five miles from Nevada, about five miles from Oregon, so we're w- way up there. but we have the the beginning of the Great Basin is to our east, so we have this you know vast um Nevada style net- mountain ranges to the east, and then we have uh, more of a like a sierra Mountains or Sierra Nevada type mountain range to, behind us on the west and um the ranch is. So it has the upland area, it has some dryland meadows, it has some lower um irrigated meadows that are closer to this big alkali lake that's now really full because we've had an incredible winter. But but it dries up in the summer and um, but it's full in the winter. So it looks like we have this beautiful lakefront property. You just you get too close, you notice it's actually like this gray, mucky, clay stuff. But from a distance it's absolutely stunning. So we um we manage the ranch holistically it's uh, like, like you read in the beginning of our bio three generations so the the ranch is owned by my in-laws uh, steve and patty smith and they were wonderful and amazing enough to open themselves to this crazy venture of Spencer's and mine to start a savory global network hub on the ranch so the springs ranch is our demonstration site and we uh, that we would anyway, but that man, that requires us to manage it holistically and have all of our holistic management ducks in a row. We have our grazing plan, financial plan, land plan. Every July, we do our ecological monitoring to to look at uh, the like the ground cover and the plant spacing and the biodiversity to, to see how our management decisions are impacting the land and if we're taking it in the right direction or, or not. And then we can adjust accordingly so that monitoring is a big part of managing holistically so and then of course we have our daughter Maisie who is now six and she says by the time she's 10 she's going to go start keeping holistic management classes with her dad and I think she will she she, she doesn't understand why now she can't but I think reading might be a, a prerequisite but she's working on that <laughs> so. Yeah. so there's uh, all of us work together on the ranch and and, um, my husband is a Savory Institute field professional, so he works with, um, like you said, farmers and ranchers. He's actually in Georgia now teaching a grazing course with our friend and, um, fellow hub network member, Will Harris. Um, so he does a lot of traveling during the non-growing season to work with farmers and ranchers and, and teach holistic management. And then, um, we offer events and, and different things on the ranch as well. to to help people learn and it it can be hard to you know to open yourself and say this is what we're doing here's where it's working here's where it's falling flat and we need to fix this we're still trying to challenge we're trying to figure this out so holistic management is not about being perfect it's about having a good process that's going to take you in the direction you want to go and it's believe me it's definitely not about being perfect we have a we still feel like we have a lot to learn and I think that's when you, when you start working with nature, it's so humbling to, to mm-hmm. realize how many, you know, how much you don't know and, and how hard you're trying to get things right. But, so we run cattle on the ranch that it's, it's a certified organic ranch and we take in uh, what we call pasture cattle. So they come from an, another beef company um, that's headquartered in Siskiyou County, our neighbor, and they come in, they come in May, so they're, we're getting ready for them to come, and then they leave in October, and they graze the grass. So we think that our, our emphasis is we grow grass on this ranch, and then we, we, um, bring in the cattle to harvest it, and we get paid for that, and then they, um, they go on, and we don't have to feed cattle all winter, which is, really suits our holistic context in terms of our quality of life. Wow. So, um, so we have, we mainly do the cattle, my husband is, he worked for a cowboy, as a cowboy for many, many years. So he has an interest in training horses and, um, shoeing horses and all the things that go along with, with being a cowboy. So we still have a string of ranch horses that he's training and selling and, and just really it's fulfilling for him. Um, and we like to ride as a family as well. So we do a lot of things traditionally that's traditional to California and Nevada in terms of the cowboy and buckaroo type culture. And then, um, we also have, we don't do any um, market gardens or anything like that, but we have a big garden that feeds the family, and we have a small flock of chickens. And, um, Maisie has some interest in hogs, so I think we <laughs> I could see our, um, portfolio of livestock enterprises expanding as she gets older, but, um, for now that that's what we, we focus on, and, um, we just don't want to add too many at once and spread, spread things too thin. So, so
3: that's us. that.
1: Makes sense. Well, ben, yeah. well, I appreciate that. What uh, it sounds like you're doing a lot right, and it sounds like one of the things you're doing right is you got your the next generation um, interested in it. Which is, uh, heck, we could fill a whole different podcast or uh, book with uh, with that issue. But uh, I guess quickly, you know, how, how did you how do you keep your your kid uh, kids interested and your whole family interested in this in this venture in a day when uh, a lot of uh, family farms and family ranches are really struggling to to pass that baton.
3: Hmm.
2: That's so interesting. That's a great question because we just, for us, it's always just happened really organically. Um, I think Spencer and I truly enjoy being on the ranch and being together. Um, you know, it's, it's just an innate passion, and and I think kids pick up on that. So it's always been our um, our family time. It's always been our happy time to be together and be working together. Um, I know, you know, growing up on a ranch, I know that it's not always fun. And there's, there's moments when, you know, the cows break out and do the things they're not supposed to do and mm-hmm. things get tense, but there still is like this, you know, underlying sense of fulfillment and joy that you get from the work that you do. And, and I think if you just take your kids with you and let them share in that and be part of it and have ownership in the work and the outcomes and everything, it, um, that spreads to them. And, and maybe we're just lucky that maybe has, Um, That she loves to be outside. She loves to be working and building things. And as long as we're going, if we're riding, we're hiking, we're gardening. As long as we're doing something, she's a happy girl. So um, I think I think just including your kids and and taking them with you, it's from a very very young age. I I mean, we have um, we have pictures of Maisie just you know strapped to Spencer when she's like six months old and they're headed out to check cows. And um, we've always just brought her along and and not treated her like completely separately as a kid you know there wasn't like kid things and adult things it was all of us working together um always and and then and i think that that's made a big difference in the joy that she finds in the ranch
1: very cool very cool um uh last question for you i'll let you plug the saver institute a little bit uh, where, where can folks learn more about the saver institute and what you guys are doing
2: Awesome. Yeah, it's, really, it's pretty easy. Uh, savory.global. Uh, you don't have to worry about any other letters. If you wanted to go specifically to the network page to learn about our the hub network and becoming an accredited professional, which is a teacher with the Savory Institute or even a Savory Champion, which are people who advocate for holistic management who may or may not work on the land but really believe it's the, you know, the tool to create the outcomes we all need. Um, that's called our Savory Champion. So you can learn about any of those programs at Savory Global, Savory.global.network. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's, that's the place to go to learn more about that. We have a map of all the hubs in the world, so you can find the hub closest to you and connect with them. And, um, yeah, again, it's really just, it's about all of us and creating a movement and, the Savory Institute just sees themselves
1: or ourselves as facilitating that. Very cool. Well, uh, for those listening, uh, you're listening to Tractor Time, a podcast by Acres USA. Uh, today's guest has been Abby Smith, a rancher in California and a global network coordinator for the Savory Institute. Uh, just want to wrap up today by thanking Abby again and uh, wishing you the best in all your travels and all your teaching and in all your your home life on the ranch as well.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Ryan. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much.
1: Likewise, we'll be in touch. And uh, for those who want more from Abby, she will be writing in uh, pieces starting in our May issue uh, through the summer, I believe, uh, articles about grazing and about holistic management as well. So uh, thanks again, Abby, and uh, uh, have a good rest of your day. Okay.
2: All right. Thanks, Ryan. You too. All
1: right. Thanks, Abby. Take care. Bye-bye.
2: All right. Bye.
0: Once again, that was Abby Smith with the Savory Institute. I really appreciate her helping us kick this off. Without much further ado, we're going to turn this over to the Acres USA archives and listen to Charles Walter's speech, where he really tried to tell the difference between those who are using chemicals for their farm and those who are really listening to the earth and and knowing what questions to ask it and getting a lot more back in return. Uh, this is from a presentation early in the days of Acres USA, and we're, we're really happy that uh, uh, some thoughtful people recorded these presentations for posterity, and we uh, have a way to get them out again to a new set of listeners. Uh, again, thank you for listening to Tractor Time uh, with Acres USA, uh, and Happy Earth Day. Uh, here's Charles Walters.
3: Here is Acres USA publisher Charles Walters Jr. His talk. Chemical Amateurs versus Echo Farmers. When I was asked to assign a title to these few remarks today, I thought what in fact I answer when people ask me what my last book was about. And I usually say, if I could tell you that in one whiplash line, why I wouldn't have had to write the book. But I wrote back to Dr. Martin that I was going to compare chemical amateurs to echo farmers. So let's think about that a moment. Chemical amateurs versus echo farmers. I've worked in agriculture for some 20 years, and it surprises me that so few people really know what does a farmer do. Some say he grows corn, and some say he produces livestock or milk. Yet I and a few farmers see the final product of the farm as human bodies with minds capable of thought and reason. The farming profession requires farmers to bargain with their fellow men for dollars according to some few economic laws. Now, I've covered this pretty thoroughly in Unforgiven. But there's a more subtle message in Unforgiven, and it states that the farmer must also bargain with nature to get human foods according to the laws of life and death. That the chemical amateur farmer doesn't understand these things is very unfortunate. More unfortunate is the fact that the scientists who do understand these things elect to prostitute their advice, their intellectual honesty, and their permission to academic life. More than any other, this academic man has created the chemical amateur. He has furbished and refurbished the advertising pressures of those who wish to sell products for the sake of selling products alone. This academic man, this man with credentials and standing in the community, this government worker, this functionary of USDA and FDA, more than any other, he has drawn the attention of the farmer away from the laws of life and death and he's used the farmer badly so that the great funding organizations can thrive. This academic critter has in fact created the chemical amateur. He has counseled production of dust-deficient bins and bushels for dollars, then distorted accounting principles so that those dollars floated away. In the process, he has eliminated a lot of farm byproducts of value to the community at large. And here... Here I'm speaking of recreation, ecological flood control, siltation control, environmental improvement, resource conservation, and restoration. The chemical amateur has come to believe he can farm without creating these byproduct values. Indeed, he has come to think that even food value doesn't count for very much. Thus we have steel posts instead of hedges and roses. For our fence lines. We have insecticides in place of biological controls. We have undernourished crops instead of balanced soil conditions for nutritious crops. We have expensive deep wells instead of ponds and power equipment for mechanical sprayers instead of gravity flow systems. We have leached out soil, a diminished humus supply, sedimentary pollution, and floods. The echo farmer, however, is an exception. So we ask why does the echo farmer resist these great minds with their great advice from those great funded chairs of learning? Is it because the echo farmer isn't smart enough to understand chemistry or a good enough businessman to finance modern technology? Why does this echo farmer resist? Now, I submit to you that he resists because his way is cheaper. In most cases, he knows more chemistry than the chemical amateurs, and he's a good enough businessman to know something about debt and the fact that interest sits down at the table with you seven days a week, three meals a day, taking the first helping. And as a result of this, the echo farmer today earns more net profit. He tolerates the wildlife because he sees its roles in the laws of life and death. He resists the chemical bandwagon because he has lived too long to accept single-factor analysis, which is the hallmark of the amateur. He resisted it as a working reality, and he resists because he sees the bias of the schoolmen as a delusion of the simple-minded, a boast of the dishonest or a banner of the opportunist. He resists because, figuratively at least, his farm is a place that might carry a legend, and it says, Nature works here unrestricted and in cooperation with man. Nature creates new life here, it begins with microbes in the soil and ends with human bodies capable of thought and reason. But most important, the echo farmer resists because he knows a superior technology was evolved 30 to 40 years ago and that toxic technology re- represents regression, a retreat from reason, fathered and nurtured by the self-seeking whom amateurs seemed to worship in silence. Now, for a reason that I'd like to detail later, farm fertilizers abandoned sound developments in the post-war years, post-war one and post-war two. Technology regressed to 1840. The year a book called Chemistry in its application to agriculture appeared in England. Sir Albert Howard, the great British agronomist has commented on its impact, and I'd like to quote, Inquiries into general organic chemistry were so vast and so illuminating that scientists and farmers alike naturally yielded to the influence. Sir Albert Howard further commented that von Liebig's views remained those of a chemist who understood nothing about humus because he was enchanted with the laboratory and dealing with only a fraction of the fact. Then as now, the advisors of the farmers counseled bigger and heavier machinery, and those who had been gifted the right to create money made good the push for larger land holdings. In his day, von Liebig manufactured artificial manures, and though they did not stand the test of time, he maintained his faith and was questioned by none. The idea that plants could be fed back the same three elements they had drawn seemed dazzling and, like the concept of supply and demand, too hard to let go. Again, let me quote Sir Albert Howard. There was a kind of superb arrogance in the idea that we had only to put the ashes of a few plants in a test tube, analyze them, and scatter back into the soil equivalent quantities of dead minerals. It is true that the plants are the supreme, the only agents capable of converting the inorganic materials of nature into the organic. That is their great function, their justification, if we like to use the word. But it was expecting altogether too much of the vegetable kingdom that it should work only in this crude, brutal way, as we shall see the apparent submission of nature has turned out to be only a great refusal to have so childish a manipulation imposed upon her. And that is the end of the quote. Nevertheless, the laboratory hermit, the research leech, came into being, and as economic conditions pressed the farmer, he grasped at all and any means for increasing his volume so that he could produce more for less. Artificial manures picked up steam going into and coming out of depressions. In England and in the United States, catchphrases filled the pages of farm magazines. The nitrogen artificials were bagged and marketed to supply the leafage requirements of plants. Potash and phosphate artificials were bagged and sold to kick up the mineral reserves of the soil and in the law-making bodies of england and the united states n p and k became wholly ripped and the profitable background for the n p k mentality that is the amateur mentality war gave artificial manures a powerful sales assist and flower pot trials proved provided proof and war conditions provided the demand And so when the cry went out for more production during World War I, artificials indeed got a toehold. And when the war ended, fantastic industry geared to producing nitrogen for explosives were left standing without a market. The obvious out was to turn them to the task of manufacturing sulfate of ammonia for the land. Hang the consequences. Now it's a matter of record that from 1918 onward, use of artificials became the advocated course by all authorities on the continent. The farmer was touted to use these fertilizers as a moral duty, and by this time, the universities had been impelled to set up our agriculture departments, and the finely equipped experiment stations were scattered across the various countries. In their general theories and practices, they copied the universities from which they drew their workers. All these agencies, without exception, gave unconscious stress to the NPK mentality. And all these agencies seemed hypnotized by the fear of parasites. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how the republics of learning came to support two unsound principles, partial and imbalanced fertilization and toxic rescue chemistry. And this is also how these republics of learning enabled fossil fuel industries to make a dumping ground of the nation's farm acres for their byproducts. Now, I don't intend to dwell on this unsoundness except to cite a few case reports. Take potash. According to the law and according to the thinking of the chemical amateur... Potash must be water-soluble. Water-soluble in a soil means that the salt goes easily where water moves, that is, up into the plant or down away from it. If it goes into the plant easily, a phenomenon called luxury consumption takes place. Forage crops, grasses, and legumes may absorb five to six times more potash than is normal and good for either plants or animals. Taking in terms of the end product, it would have been better to have a stable form of exchangeable potash from which plant roots could draw at discretion. Now if a soil contains, let's say, 40,000 pounds of potash per acre, then the amount of exchangeable potash may be only 100 pounds per acre, and the water-soluble potash may be only 10 to 20 pounds per acre. Humus, of course, is the key. It acts as a storage facility to hold, absorb, to avoid leaching, and to be ready when the need arises. Now, plant roots excrete organic acids and enzymes. These, in turn, favor microorganisms, which release more organic acids and enzymes. In a biologically active soil, there is a continuous process of give-and-take Release and absorption, availability, and taking in the storage. As soon as we consider this process, this biological process, the problem is no longer to have an excess of water soluble potash, but to have a source of total potash, which is made available by way of the biological process. Some years ago, in the very first edition of Acres USA, we carried an article by one of Dr. Albrecht's best friends, F. Lyle Wind. The nutritional aspects of soil fertility, he wrote, depends on the activities of living microorganisms and on the electrical properties of its non-living colloidal components. The supply of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur, and of many other plant foods as well is completely dependent on the metabolic cycles undergone by these microorganisms. That's the end of the quote. And so the question is not to feed the plant directly, but to feed the soil first, which in turn will be able to feed the plants. Plants obtain their food from this colloidal and dynamic, this biologically complex organization, in a manner of speaking, only by permission of the soil. And that is why the eco-farmer deals with sandy soils quite differently than he deals with peat soils. In the first case, low organic matter permits leaching. In the second, a low biological process prevents root uptake. In both cases, the answer is to build humus to mobilize soil life. But fertility that can be added here and now must be geared to the particular soil's exchange capacity. The chemical amateur shortchanges either himself or the consumer or future generations at every turn. Let me illustrate this by discussing nitrogen. It has been reliably estimated that about 5% of the total organic matter in a soil is present as nitrogen in various compounds. In terms of a 2% organic matter, this means about 40,000 pounds organic matter to the acre. Approximately 5% of this is nitrogen. And so a soil with 2% organic matter has a reserve of 2,000 pounds of nitrogen. A soil with 3% organic matter would have a reserve of 3,000 pounds nitrogen. Nitrifying or ammonifying microorganisms transform a small fraction of this storage material to nitrate or ammonia, enough in a living soil to sustain plant growth. If we feed these organisms and otherwise care for a proper balance, the biological process in soil and compost will make these resources available. Now it's been demonstrated by Dr. Pfeiffer and some few others that the nitrogen fixation in soils under ideal conditions can add 120, 180, perhaps 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. And that's more than a farmer can afford to buy or pay for. Part of this will be utilized, the rest can be added to storage. But if easily available ammonia or nitrate is offered, nitrogen-fixing bacteria become spoiled. They become consumers and feeders rather than fixers. And so the chemical amateur loses double. His failure to manage his soil system gives him a nitrogen problem. And his attempt to buy nitrogen gives him other fertility problems. Anhydrous ammonia burns away his humus sapile as surely as if he threw a match into a overripe wheat field on a warm summer day. And yet, yet it is a fact that as soon as organic matter content exceeds 2% in soil systems managed by our, the best of our eco-farmers, these soils build up a reserve and they draw from it. There is no washing out of potash or loss of nitrogen, and all three... N, P, and K are always available and root acceptable under ECHO conditions. So one thing ought to come clear at this point, and I'd like to state it this way. The Better Business Bureau is not in the business of serving consumers. It's in the business of serving business. Food and Drug Administration is not in the business of guarding your health. It's in the business of guarding the health of the chemical and food companies and the farm magazines generally are not in the business of helping farmers they're in the business of helping those who sell toxic technology to do this job in the last case the message is figure on making it easy to farm and this appeals to the chemical amateur and chances are this is why amateurs reject echo farming even when they see the results they know but they will not admit that eco-agriculture asks farmers to do some things they cannot buy. Let's take phosphorus. The water-soluble mentality has seemingly captured the mind of the farmer, and therefore the chemical amateur remains convinced that phosphorus cannot be effective unless it comes acid-treated. And I find that many chemical amateurs don't even understand that the acid-treated stuff comes from rock phosphate in the first place. For example, by treating 1400 pounds of rock phosphate with 1200 pounds of sulfuric acid, you get 20 percent superphosphate, the tricalcium phosphate form being converted into a water-soluble monocalcium phosphate form. Incidentally, this allows the petrochemical industry to work off some rather unhandy byproducts. Now this chemical reaction causes 20% superphosphate to be represented by about 45% monocalcium phosphate and 55% calcium sulfate, or plain old gypsum. So what do you have in this bag, really? You have an o 200 about 45 pounds of the water-soluble monocalcium phosphate, which is presumably desired, and you have 55 pounds of calcium sulfate, which may or may not be desired, but which the chemical amateur is probably oblivious of in the first place. Or take O45O, another old standby. Here the acid is phosphoric acid, and they call it triple superphosphate. This eliminates calcium sulfate, but it still subjects the soil acres to harsh, harsh chemical overload. Ammonium phosphate, such as 832O or 1148O and so on, also involve concentrated phosphoric acid. Again, back to your oil company byproducts. Now the chemical amateur jumps up and down fawn-fashioned when he thinks about this water-soluble fertilizer. Not many even understand that the acid treatment merely means that rock phosphate is being converted from tricalcium phosphate to monocalcium phosphate and that this highly unstable form is subject to natural reversion back to stable tricalcium phosphate. The rate of reversion differs. The pH... The free calcium in the soil, the organic matter, all these things figure in the rate of reversion. But I feel it's safe to say that 75% of the monocalcium phosphate reverts back to stable tricalcium phosphate within 90 days. In some soils, the reversion takes place within hours, and as soil conditions worsen, release of nutrients from rock phosphate worsens and the chemical amateur becomes married to buying acetic fertilizers, each go-round still worsening further the structure of his soil. I might digress here to illustrate how uninformed the chemical amateur is about toxic technology he uses. 2,4-D is a point in question. As early as 1948, 2,4-D was known to produce liver and kidney damage, heart attacks, destruction of the central nervous system, genetic changes, reduction in potency, hemorrhages, paralysis, personality changes, and extreme mental disorders. 2,4-D causes tumors in cancer studies. And still, 2,4-D is registered for use on apples, blueberries, oats, sorghum, grapefruit, pears, soybeans, asparagus, corn, Rice, wheat, lemons, potatoes, strawberries, barley, cranberries. And if that weren't enough, add rye, grapes, oranges, raspberries, sugarcane. Twenty times more of this stuff is sold than 245T. I mention this because a few meaningless restrictions have been placed on 245T, a sister chemical. And I mention it because the doses used in testing 2,4-D were less than half those used in the 2,4,5-T tests. In other words, the name of the game seems to be ban something that is insignificant to placate the ecology nuts and give the chemical amateurs their dangerous playthings. Now, in comparing the cancer and the deformity lists, I find the following chemicals registered for use on food crops as producing cancers. Heptachlor, PPDDT, Dieldrin, Myrex, Armamite, Monuron, 2,4-D, Chlorobenzylate, 2,6-dichloro-4, gibberellic acid, Captac, aldrin, captan, strobane, PPDDD, Pertane, and I'm sure you will recognize at least some of these. Indeed, turning such dangerous chemicals over to usage by those untrained in chemistry has got the rank as the greatest mismanagement of public policy in the history of the world nor are the damages limited to farm crops and human health. If I can be permitted a double digression, I would like to point out that the increase in forest and brush fires in California coincides with the spraying of Agent Orange, that is, 2,4-D and 245 t and Agent Blue and Agent White, with their long chemical names, to control mesquite and chaparral. I have never found a forest ranger who knew that these hormone chemicals underwent chemical changes to make them attractive to animals, or that some bugs, the lady gall, wasp, for instance, goes on a sex binge when sprayed and lays eggs everywhere, upsetting the already upset balance in forests. I have never met a forest ranger who understood that Agent Orange made trees more flammable, or that at high fire temperatures, rolling billows of toxic fumes added even more hazard to the destruction of forest life. As a matter of fact, 25 years ago, when I worked with blister rust control in the Colorado timber stands, we used weedone as though it were water, but we didn't spray and send drift for a hundred miles. Stupid? Yes. But were we any more stupid than the chemical amateur who puts these same toxic materials on the food you must eat the chemical amateur is a label farmer he wants to force feed to bypass nature's requirements and he expects to do this because the labels tell him he can he wants to pressure life from a seed and to rescue this life with toxic genetic chemicals because the betters tell him that this is scientific. Now, earlier, I said that the principles of eco farming were worked out decades ago. As a matter of fact, there was a bright shining moment when scientific influence rode high. Our farmers in the main, throughout our history, have been more miners than farmers. And as long as the nation was being settled, It remained the practice of farmers to become recapitalized on free land out west. This process continued even after the frontier was declared closed toward the end of the last century and more or less terminated during the 1930s when the New Deal repealed the Homestead Act. Still, it was during the New Deal days that a program of soil rejuvenation was started. Lime and lime some more became the byword because calcium was being recognized as a prime nutrient. And at the University of Missouri, Dr. William Albrecht and his associates proved out what must surely be recognized as the foundation system for eco farming 15% magnesium. And that potassium for the colloid needed to be only two to five percent. Other base elements needed to account for perhaps another five percent. Albrecht discovered that the soil colloid must be loaded with 65 percent calcium to only 15 percent magnesium. And that potassium for the colloid needed to be only two to five percent other base elements needed to account for perhaps another 5%. By measuring the cation exchange capacity of any soil type, they could write a prescription, a prescription composed of natural materials, whether calcium, phosphate, magnesium, potassium, or others. And soil balanced in this manner would produce crops with hormone and enzyme systems in balance. Crops in short, that could protect themselves against nature's predators. All Breck could and did grow, infested rows and clean rows, side by side, simply by altering the soil balance. The details of these experiments fill many volumes, albeit volumes that have never been assembled as such, or published as such. And it must be stated that A few of Albrecht's students put into practice what he preached. They were the echo farmers of the post-World War II era. Louis Bromfield took these lessons to Malabar Farm, and for a time the big soup companies and the food fabricators toured Malabar, not the toxic acres of the corporation, set. Then something happened. The full story would require hours. But those of you who have followed economics know that circa 1950s, farmers lost their parity. The British devalued the pound, and the United States became the high market of the world. And as in Europe, this caused American farm prices to fall to the world level. Our farmers reached for the artificial manures, the acidic fertilizers and the toxic rescue chemicals. And from the universities and the extension workers came a steady flood of propaganda that poo-pooed working with nature. Man, not God, was perceived to be master of biology. At the University of Missouri, Dr. Albrecht was forced into retirement. As one MU economist put it to me, he was too hard-headed to go along. More than any other, this retirement snapped the chain of progress progress, Echo Farmers had accounted for. The chemical amateur came into his own in the U.S. He was feeded at dinners and told how great he was doing. God put the worm in the apple, boasted the semi-literate, and man with his chemicals took it out. Recently, I contacted E.M. Pirro, Golden City, Missouri. He was one of the echo farmers who worked closely with Dr. Albrecht. He told me that he applied lime, phosphate, and magnesium to his worn out acres because he sensed in Albrecht an honesty of purpose often missing among the betters. By using soil tests and wise counsel, Perot got higher yields and better nutrition for his animals. He told me that Missouri now leads all states except Texas in calf production and that this could very well be the result of what Albrecht had done. So maybe we ought to take a look at this one echo farmer and then compare him with his chemical counterpart. What about production? The increase has been sevenfold over what it was 50 years ago. The potential for even better production is possible. This production has kept his cows disease-free for 32 years. Biological insect control has worked well for 50 years on that farm. Wildlife proliferates on the Pirro farm. Deer are even making a comeback. The ponds are full of fish for those who care to catch them and are providing recreation for boys and girls, eight to 80 and for those who cannot afford the transportation to large lakes. Three colleges bring their classes in, bio- in biology to the Perot farm. Indeed, bird watchers, wildlife and wildflower lovers, soil conservationists, irrigation and flood engineers, economists, bankers, fertilizer producers, business people, all come to see natural beauty and healthy, healthy plants and animals in one place. I might state here that this echo territory is not marked by a great flood control dam which impounds acres of water over rich soil so that those with money can play within a half mile of poverty. The soil controls flood water because it soaks it up. Siltation control is no problem for the experienced echo farmer. Perot thinks hard and long about the value his farm delivers, other than those he collects for at the market. He tells me about the 6.6 tons of oxygen one acre of corn delivers to the air, and the nine tons of carbon dioxide each acre takes from the atmosphere. He is proud of the organic matter bank account in his soil. This real wealth of a nation because it feeds the cellulose decaying bacteria that use and hold with their living bodies the nitrate nitrogen that would otherwise find its way into wells and streams i have multiflora and hedge fences because they are cheaper than steel posts he says i have uncut and unplowed places around my ponds and in my fields to provide biological pest control since this is cheaper than insecticides. I hold my soil in place with grass and run clear water to the creek because the soil is of no value to me after it leaves my farm. Mr. Perot could go on and on, and it all seems to mean I do these things because I am no fool. Now, for reasons that should be apparent to all, the chemical amateur remains an amateur because he will not think for himself. So we pose several questions. Must more land go to the sea before this amateur starts thinking? Must more air stink? More water become thick with sewage? Must there be more creeping, crippling illnesses of body and mind before this chemical amateur sees what is polluted air and water and his malnourished crops are doing to his fellow men, must we all stand by while this chemical amateur refuses to obey the laws of nature? I'll admit it is tough business being an eco-farmer. The world applauds those who go the other way and violate the laws of nature. The big companies lick their chops and the professors who share in the grant money Sanctify the procedure with scientific mumbo-jumbo. Most of the farm magazines are kept alive to tell the story of toxic chemical makers and not the story of the echo farmer. So at this time, I would like to share one final point. The echo farmer is your farmer and you are his final product. Yet you tell the farmer it is up to him to destroy or to restore. And I ask, how can this be? I am told by members of this assembly that farming is for farmers, that you are merely interested in nutrition, cooking, food supplements. And I again I ask, how can this be? The consumer, the end product of eco-farming, must be more interested in farm technology than the farmer himself or there will be no change so again i ask are you ready for a change what is it you want of this farmer Do you want him to remain an amateur a being so low in scientific acumen that he swallows whole cloth the self-serving nonsense put out by fertilizer chemical and sales company shills so that in turn he can deliver to you his end product, chronic metabolic disorders? Who are we? I submit that in the main we are the walking wounded, offended by this amateur, yet not ready to die. Where are the young people among us? Where is our influence on the farmer? Yes. You, the end product of farming, must know at least as much about agriculture as the farmer. That is your job, and you cannot shirk it with impunity. The amateur must not be in charge of your destiny. Yours is also the task of passing the torch. I hope I have passed mine, and I will continue to do my job. Will you do yours? I thank you.
0: Thank you again for listening to Tractor Time by Acres USA. This is Ryan Slaybaugh. Uh, wishing everybody a happy and healthy weekend, and we will talk to you next week.